Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, here we go. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Assume nothing. Brash, bald-faced, blasphemy. Question everything. I find it extremely hard to imagine. Open your eyes. It is quite all right to be an atheist. The fastest growing group of people in the country has been measured as being those who have no belief or who are atheists. You don't have to be apologetic or quiet about it. Challenge the opposition. You see religion on a hundred fronts losing the argument. And start thinking. This is The Thinking Atheist Worldwide. Tonight's show is brought to you by EvolveFish.com. T-shirts, pendants, earrings, stickers, posters, novelties of all kinds that help you express your secular self and get your message out there. Darwin Fish merchandise, science-based stuff, posters of The Last Supper featuring scientists, DNA earrings, Rainbow Nation pins, great T-shirts, funny shirts like ones that say The Big Bong Theory. Hundreds and hundreds of very cool and often very funny products for those who live outside the box. Log on, browse, and once again express your inner and outer infidel at EvolveFish.com. Something that disturbed you, chilled you to your bone. 
Like when you had a nightmare about someone looking in the window when you woke up in your room and even though there was no one there, you felt a presence in the room? Or maybe a toy had come alive and you woke up and realized that the toys were absolutely still and there was really nothing to be afraid of, but still, you couldn't take your eyes off the toy box, that kind of thing. Well, this is a story about a little boy who used to have bad dreams from time to time. And to comfort himself, in the middle of the night, he would get up and crawl in bed right between his mom and his dad. They would pull the covers up over him and feel warm and safe for the rest of the night. His name is David. One night when little David was five years old, he had a really vivid dream. And he woke up frightened. And he had that feeling, that feeling of dread, that you sometimes carry into the real world from your dreams. And he got up and went to his parents' room to crawl in safely with them. However, when he peeked his head in the door, he saw his mother and father lying on the bed, and lying next to their bed on the floor was a set of identical parents, his mother and father on the bed, and an identical mother and father lying face up on the floor. David knew instinctively in the dream that he had to wake up the right parents, because the wrong parents, they were evil. They were monsters. And so he chose the parents on the floor, thinking that if there was an evil imposter in the room, he would try to trick him. And so he chose the parents on the floor, right? That's the obvious choice for the clever. And he went over to his parents on the floor and he tapped them on the shoulder and he shook them lightly. And they both at the same moment opened their eyes. And where their eyeballs should have been, there were just empty orbs of bright, glowing red light. And then there was a flash, and David woke up in his own bedroom safe and sound. A traumatic dream for anyone, but especially for a five-year-old boy. And so he ran out of his bedroom, and he went down the hall, and he went for the safety of his parents' room, and as he walked into the door, he looked inside and saw a set of parents on the bed and a set of parents on the floor. And at the exact same moment, all four faces opened their eyes, turned toward him and said, Come in, David. Fast approaches, and it is our annual Ghost Stories broadcast, which we started doing in 2012. Now, I realize there may be some newer listeners who wonder, what's going on here? You don't believe in the supernatural. You've rejected the supernatural, and you're doing a broadcast, an entire show dedicated to ghost stories? What's that about? Well, contrary to the myth that is being sort of promoted out there about non-believers in God, we also love a good story. We love fiction. We love fantasy. We love Halloween. We love most major holidays, come to think of it. 
We like to sit around the virtual campfire and share spooky stories in the month of October. And uh, so the idea that we wouldn't be able to enjoy this stuff because we're skeptics is just crazy. And some people have some fascinating stories about supposed encounters with ghosts and spirits and the supernatural. This is stuff we like to chew on and explore. And then around those stories, it's just classic ghost tales, things that go bump in the night, ghosts and ghouls, and a lot of fun for the radio audience. Thank you so much for listening to the broadcast tonight. Now, I hope this isn't too presumptuous, but I uh, decided to close the broadcast today with a story, a ghost story that I wrote myself. I'm a fan of the genre. I love a good scary movie. I love a good scary story. I love telling ghost stories on the radio. And so I thought I'd just take a crack at it. I'm making no promises as to quality (laughs) or how scary it is or isn't. But the final story on today's broadcast will be an original, something that I sort of put down on paper, added some bells and whistles to and will present for your approval. But between now and then, we have some classic stories, some original stories from others, and of course, the submissions of our listeners. Death is no stranger to Alcatraz. Alcatraz Island is located in San Francisco Bay, about a mile and a half offshore, and it's home to one of the most famous federal prisons in the entire world. Its doors open and its cells locked up with prisoners from 1933 to 1963. Before that, Alcatraz was a military stronghold. It was a fortress for the armies. It was a cage for the criminals. Today, it is a tourist attraction, and for some, it is the final resting place. It's been said that Alcatraz was the last stop before entering hell. Many people died under the shadow of Alcatraz. Men were killed while excavating rock. There were fatal confrontations between violent prisoners, beatings by the guards, failed escapes, and the unknown fate of Clarence Anglin, John Anglin, and Frank Morris, who escaped using makeshift inflatable rafts in June of 1962. Did they make it to freedom? Or did they drown in the waters of San Francisco Bay? Half a century later, it is still a mystery. Prison staff and inmates used to report a figure in the darkness of the cell block at night. There were reports of other ghostly figures banging metal doors and empty chambers, rancid odors, and even the sound of someone weeping, their sobs echoing through the metal and concrete of Alcatraz. Psychics and mediums claim that Alcatraz is a cauldron of supernatural activity, cold spots in warm rooms, vibrations, ghostly faces, unexpected chills, the movement of inanimate objects. Perhaps the most haunted place inside Alcatraz is the isolation block, the hole, also called strip cells because inmates would be led down, stripped of all their clothing, held inside a cold cell with only a sink and toilet. Inside the hole, inmates stripped of all comforts, naked, shivering, isolated, in darkness would often scream at the top of their lungs. They'd scream through the night. The following day, some would have bruises on their bodies, and they told the guards emphatically they'd been attacked. Someone, something, had come into their cell and assaulted them. 
It was a dark shape, broad shoulders, glowing eyes. Glowing eyes. On one brisk night in the fall of 1940, the isolation block was again filled all night with the terrified screams of an inmate. The guards said nothing. The guards did nothing. And suddenly, a few hours before dawn, the place went absolutely silent. The inmate's door was opened that morning, and lying on the hard floor was the inmate's lifeless body. His face contorted into a twisted wreck, and the marks... The marks of handprints around his throat. The medical examiner saw no evidence that he was throttled by his own hands, and as the isolation block is heavily guarded and inaccessible to anyone and everyone but the inmates and guards, this murderous visitor remains a mystery. And some say that even today, when the tourists go home and the staff calls it a night, and the lights go out on Alcatraz, a dark looming figure walks the cells, distinguishable only by its glowing eyes and its spindly hands, which once sent so many of the isolation block inmates of Alcatraz into the final darkness. Had a listener from India named Rohit, I hope I'm saying that correctly, R-O-H-I-T, forgive me if I've mispronounced it. Rohit says this, I'm a listener from India, have been enjoying your podcast for the last year or so. When I heard about your Ghost Stories podcast, I thought it was a really opportune moment to send you a story from many years ago when I was in college. Our whole class of about 40 decided to go on a holiday to a hill station named Udi. O-O-T-Y, about a couple of hundred kilometers from Bangalore, where we lived. As we were from a Catholic college, we were allowed to stay at a Jesuit house situated on top of a hill, surrounded by tea estates with not much civilization for miles on end. One night, we lit a bonfire. We had a great time drinking and partying till quite late. By midnight, after most had gone to bed, someone decided we should play a prank and stage a ghost sighting. One of the guys in our group draped a white bedsheet on himself, wore black shoes and socks, tied a belt around his neck to form a ghost-like shape, and hid behind the silver statue of St. Ignatius of Loyola in the middle of the courtyard. A dark night and a silver statue shimmering in the remnants of the bonfire was an eerie sight. We then went randomly banging on the doors of our classmates, when a few got out to investigate the mysterious banging, the ghost appeared from behind the statue and walked across the courtyard and dived into the bushes. The ensuing screaming and panic was way more serious than we had expected. Many of our classmates, girls and boys, were terrified and white as sheets. Many were sobbing. And almost everyone huddled in one room because few were brave enough to return to their rooms for the rest of the night. We'd originally planned to tell everyone that it was a hoax, but seeing the situation, we lost our nerve and decided to bury the truth, at least for a while. By the time we returned to Bangalore, this incident had turned into an urban legend, and everyone in the university, including some faculty and parents, believed we had seen a real live ghost. The story was told and retold many times, and the truth slowly diluted each time it was retold, 
was only a few months after the incident that we confessed to the prank during party night. There are two reasons why I wanted to share this story. Ironically, I just returned from a funeral. The classmate who passed away today was my friend and was the infamous ghost of Uti. This was one of the contributing factors to my skepticism, where I saw firsthand how easily a legend took shape and how a simple hoax took on a life of its own. Since then, I routinely question every dubious story I hear for evidence of a prank or deliberate deception. Thanks for everything you do, Rohit. Thank you so much for the message. Greatly appreciate it and a great story. Had an email in from Joseph who said, Hi Seth, I know how much you love doing Halloween shows each year. I have one request. Can you please, please read either or both poems, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, and or The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert Service. Your voice would be killer. I'm presently trying to commit both to memory for the fun of it, and thought how cool it would be if you took a whack at it on the air. Regards, Joseph. Joseph, thank you very much for the message. Well, I know most of us are familiar with the works of Edgar Allan Poe, specifically The Raven. I myself had never heard of... Robert Service, or The Cremation of Sam McGee. Never heard of it before, so I looked it up prior to the broadcast, and I think it would lend itself well to our Ghost Stories show. So thanks for bringing it to my attention. And for our audience, this is The Cremation of Sam McGee. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Lobarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell, though he'd often say in his homely way that he'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold. Through the parka's fold, it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd closed, then the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars o'erhead were dancing heel to toe, he turned to me and, Cap, said he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chilled clean through to the bone. Yet, taint being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains, so I want you to swear that foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. 
He crouched on the sleigh and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee, and before nightfall a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried, horror-driven, with a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promised true, and it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were dumb in the heart, how I cursed that load. In the long, long night, by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring howled out their woes to the homeless snows, oh God, how I loathed the thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in, and I'd often sing to the hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake Lobarge and a derelict there lay, it was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a trice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I, with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying around, and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared. Such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so, and the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why, and the greasy smoke and an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about ere again I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, Please, close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Brian Bethel is a respected veteran journalist and current administrator for the Abilene Reporter News. In the 1990s, Brian wrote an article detailing an experience that would soon come to be shared by many other people. 
His story is unique in that it was the first, and it was told by someone with an eye for journalistic detail and absolutely nothing to gain. In fact, he had a career to lose by spinning such an implausible yarn. One evening, as Brian sat parked outside the local movie theater, filling out a check for the night deposit next door, his driver's side was approached by a couple of children, no more than 10 or 12. Brian rolled down his window, expecting a request for money. One of the boys spoke, but even before any words came out of his mouth, Brian was gripped by fear, an irrational, heart-pounding fear that he couldn't explain. The boy told a story. They wanted to see the movie. They left their money at home. And could Brian give them a ride? Brian tried to avoid looking at them. Not wanting his fear to show, he noticed the last showing of the movie had already begun. The little boy implored, We're just a couple of kids. We don't have a gun or anything. And as Brian finally locked eyes with the boy, his mind went wild with horror. Both of the children's eyes were cold black. Stammering out an excuse, he began to roll up his window and put the car into gear, and the little boy called out angrily, We can't come in unless you say it's okay. Let us in. Let us in. Let us in. Brian burned rubber all the way home, and he wrote about the experience later that night. Apparently, he's far from the only one. Stories abound on the web about black-eyed people, usually children, but sometimes adults with similar requests who cause unexplained panic in all who encounter them. Perhaps it's just those eyes, or the odd, somewhat alien nature of their speech, or the malevolent, predatory nature that those who encounter them can feel lurking just beneath the surface. No one has stuck around long enough to find out just who or what they really are. Perhaps you, on some dark night, on some dark street, will come across these two young children. And if you survive, perhaps you can let the rest of us know. Janice in Ontario sent me her ghost story. It goes like this. My husband, Doug, grew up in North Wales. The Welsh are a very superstitious people, especially country folk. He told me the following story that happened when he was 15. It was sunny and warm, a July day in 1957. However, rain had been forecast for the next morning, and Will Perry of Hill Farm was concerned because he still had a lot of hay to be harvested. Rain would spoil the cut hay that lay in the fields. Will had one hired man, Eric Lewis, and he hired Doug as an extra hand. The three men worked all day, loading hay onto the wagon and taking it to the stacking field. The day wore on into evening, and finally there was only one more load of hay to be unloaded, and Eric turned on the tractor lights as the sun set. The last of the hay was finally unloaded off the wagon when Will's dog, Pip, started barking and howling. My husband told me what happened next. Doug said he looked in the direction the dog was facing. What he saw then made him rigid with fear. A bright presence, which appeared to be about seven feet tall, floated into the field through the gate. As he stared in awe, Doug noticed the presence seemed to be wearing a long cloak or shroud and was floating about two feet off the ground. He felt like the presence was staring at him, 
but his fear prevented him from looking directly where he imagined the creature's eyes would be. He was afraid he'd actually see eyes looking at him, or see a halo around its head. Doug said he stood stunned as the presence floated past him and out into the stacking field. It hovered for a moment near the hedge, and then in a flash it went through the hedge and disappeared. As the presence disappeared, Eric said in an awed voice, Did you see that? Doug said yes, he had, but Will did not. He denied seeing anything, and he said the other two were just being foolish. Doug told me he felt that Will didn't want to admit to seeing the presence because his father had committed suicide near that field about 35 years before. Doug told me he never entered that field alone for as long as he lived in that area, especially after dark. When he told me about this, I laughed and said it was a will-o'-the-wisp, which is common on fields in the UK on an evening where there's a change in the weather. Doug won't have that as an explanation. He is firmly convinced he saw a ghost. Several people sent me a request to do some of these two-sentence horror stories. You've seen several websites out there uh, that uh, just feature very, very, very short ghost stories, two sentences long. Well, I was skeptical, but I went to some of these websites and looked around and actually found a few that were pretty creepy. And with your approval, I'll read a few of them here on the show. Terrifying two-sentence horror stories. The last thing I saw was my alarm clock flashing 12.07 before she pushed her long, rotting nails through my chest, her other hand muffling my screams. I sat bolt upright, relieved it was only a dream. But as I saw my alarm clock read 12.06, I heard my closet door creak open. Growing up with cats and dogs, I got used to the sounds of scratching at my door while I slept. Now that I live alone, it is much more unsettling. In all of the time I've lived alone in this house, I swear to God I've closed more doors than I've opened. My wife woke me up last night to tell me there was an intruder in our house. She'd been murdered by an intruder two years ago. I awoke to the sound of the baby monitor crackling with a voice comforting my firstborn child. As I adjusted to a new position, my arm brushed against my wife, sleeping next to me. I always thought my cat had a staring problem. She always seemed fixated on my face, until one day when I realized that she was always looking just behind me. There's nothing like the laughter of a baby, unless it's 1 a.m. and you're home alone. I can't sleep, she whispered, crawling into bed with me. I woke up cold, clutching the dress she had been buried in. I can't move, breathe, speak, or hear, and it's so dark all the time. If I knew it would be this lonely... I would have been cremated instead. After working a hard day, I came home to see my girlfriend cradling our child. I didn't know which was more frightening, seeing my dead girlfriend and stillborn baby, or knowing that someone had broken into my apartment to place them there. 
There was a picture in my phone of me sleeping. I live by myself. Anyway, those are just a few of the two-sentence horror stories that are floating around out there on the internet. There are many, many more for those who care to look. Here's a ghost story that says, I was an airplane mechanic stationed in England in 1992. I was told when I first arrived at my shop that England is the most haunted country on earth. Don't be surprised if you see something. They told me about the local stories and I listened to them. Some were pretty far-fetched and some were quite interesting. Well, I had to rent off base because there wasn't an opening for base housing. The nearest place I could find was in the village called March. This village was about 35 miles north of the base and is at the other end of the moors. The moors are a drained swampland that's used by English farmers to grow sugar beets and potatoes. The land is flat and empty in all directions and has sections of hedgerows and forest for protection from wind erosion. The land is always covered with heavy patches of fog at night and is not a good place for a car to break down. I always breathed a sigh of relief after passing through the moors. I always picked up hitchhikers in the moors because for one, it was an unwritten law in the village told to me by my English neighbor that this is the only way a lot of the local farmers coming from the fields get home and some that work at factories get to work, something I sure wouldn't do in the United States. I made a lot of good friends in England doing this small service and they still write to me this day. One night I was coming home from work about 2 a.m. and I was about halfway through the moors. The patches of fog were heavy that night and I would drive about 300 yards in total blindness with 100 yards of open sky. I had just come out of a bank of fog when I noticed a man standing beside the road. He was dressed in bluish-gray coveralls and looked to be wearing a welder's helmet. Under his arm looked to be a torn, white-gray bedsheet trailing behind him. I drove past slowly and he gave no indications that I was there and he looked to me like he was lost. I was thinking to myself, well, this is strange. It's late at night. Should I stop and pick him up? I, for one, would not like to be caught in the moors at night, so I stopped and I backed up. I saw him start to approach the car out of the left rear window. I owned a British car at the time, an Austin Mini. I reached over to unlock the passenger door to let him in. The dash lights and headlights went suddenly dim and the car started to run very rough. I scanned the dash looking for an oil light or something out of the ordinary and then suddenly all power came back to the car and it started running smooth again. I looked back over to see what the hitchhiker was doing and he was gone. I said to myself, what's going on here? Where did he go? I took a flashlight out of the glove box and I got out of the car. I looked around thinking he might have fallen in a ditch. Maybe he needs help. I searched for about two, three minutes and I could not find anyone. The hairs on the back of my neck began to rise and I got some serious goosebumps. I got back in the car thinking I need to get out of here and get out of the moors. A couple days went by and I didn't tell anybody about the experience. I thought that I'd been tired from the long hours at work and the long drives home. I was coming home from work a few days later and the British police had the road blocked off in the middle of the moors. So I got out of the car to see what was going on. The British police told me a farmer had found an old German bomber from the Second World War with the crew 
still on board. I approached the crash site, being curious, and I noticed the crew members from the bomber, their decayed bodies still clothed, wearing bluish-gray coveralls, and wearing a leather flight helmet that looked just like a welder's cap. Also, one of the crew members had a parachute torn and shredded next to him. The parachute was grayish-white, deployed and trailing away from him. As I look back at that night and that mysterious figure in the mist of the moors, I wondered if perhaps I had encountered someone who'd been stranded here so long ago. Maybe this man was not a farmer or factory worker. Maybe he was just a man in uniform, decades wandering the mist, simply hoping to go home. If I may, I'd like to take a short intermission from the ghost stories and uh, talk about an article that just released in the Christian Post on Monday of this week, as they interviewed none other than Kirk Cameron. Now, some people ask me, why are you talking about Kirk Cameron? This guy is on a quest for relevance. Why are you giving him the time of day? Why give him exposure? Why are we talking about him? He's irrelevant. And I've come to the opinion... That's the more Cameron and his ilk, the more they speak, the more we win. We should draw a big, fat, red circle around everything they say in public, because at the end of the day, it only helps us. And this is a beautiful example. Kirk Cameron asserted to the Christian Post that Halloween originally belonged to Christianity and the Catholic Church and was stolen by the pagans. <laughs> That's right. Halloween didn't originate with the Celtic priests and the festival of Samhain and all of these pagan festivals, which were then ripped off by the Catholic Church. No, no, we've got the scenario absolutely backwards. It's horrifying to think that people might be listening to this guy. Perhaps even more alarming in the article was Kirk Cameron's assertion that those who go out and dress up as the president in these unflattering costumes and masks of Barack Obama are similar to when Christians dress up in costumes as the devil, ghosts, goblins, and witches to make the point that, quote, those things were defeated and overthrown by the resurrected Jesus Christ. So essentially, if you dress up in a costume making fun of Barack Obama, it's the equivalent of righteous people stomping on the foot of Satan. By the way, a couple of years ago, we did a whole broadcast on the haunted history of Halloween, which talks about the festival of Samhain and the Celts and the Druids and how the natural and the supernatural world would sort of intersect at the end of the new year, which at that time was October the 31st. And we talk about the Catholic Church, which came in after the fact. And Pope Boniface, who moved All Saints Day and All Martyrs Day from May to November in an attempt to sort of cash in on the popularity 
of this pagan holiday, the All Souls Day, praying people out of purgatory, the Festival of the Dead, all of these emulations of what pagans had been doing long before, sort of grabbed and copycatted by the Catholic Church after the fact. And it's an interesting sort of look at the origins, the true origins, the legitimate origins of Halloween. So if you're interested, I will put the link to that show in the description box of this podcast. This next story has the distinction of being absolutely true. The year is 1976, and a television film crew is setting up for an episode of the popular TV show, The Six Million Dollar Man, with a scene taking place inside the haunted house at the New Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California. They were moving things around, and they set to relocate a hanging man prop that was part of the haunted house. And yes, I know you're way ahead of me on this story, but hang in there. There's a lot more to it. When they moved the prop, one of its arms broke free, broke off, and the crew was horrified to see not stuffing, not plastic, not metal or cloth, but actual decayed human bone. Hanging inside the haunted house all that time, all that time, with thousands of people passing through, was an actual human corpse. And the story gets even stranger. The body belongs to Elmer McCurdy, a criminal mastermind of the early 20th century who was killed in a train robbery shootout in 1911. Now, here's what happened. The local undertaker embalmed the body, and he was so pleased with his work that he propped the body up inside his funeral home like a greatest hit, right, for visitors to see. People paid five cents apiece. That's about a buck twenty-five in today's dollars, by the way. And people would pay by placing their nickel inside the mouth of the deceased Elmer McCurdy. And for years, the body of Elmer raked in the coin, literally. Until McCurdy's brothers showed up one day, they claimed him and took his body away. Actually, the men who showed up, they weren't really Elmer's brothers. They were crafty carnival promoters, and they took his body across the country on display, showing him at carnivals from coast to coast before finally putting him to rest, sort of, in Long Beach, California. And he was one of the main attractions inside one of the main attractions for years and years, with workers and visitors inside the haunted house thinking he was a fake just a prop, something you might buy at a Halloween shop. Elmer McCurdy's body now lies in Oklahoma, and they actually covered his burial site in concrete to prevent anybody else from absconding with his remains. The outlaw from 100 years ago, dining on the nickels of the public and hanging by the neck as men, women, and children brushed by only inches away. Kelly sent me a story about a game called Hitori Kakarenbo, Lonely Hide and Seek. This game is truly terrifying. She sent a link from Horror News to an article on the game that was written by Teresa Matsura, who describes the game that she had learned about herself while living in Japan, and here's how it works. Here are the rules if you want to play Hitori Kakarenbo, and then you can play on your own if you dare. 
You will need for the game a stuffed animal that has both arms and legs. You'll need rice, fingernail clippers, a knife, a shard of glass or some sharp instrument, a needle with a long piece of red thread, a cup of salt water or Japanese sake, and you'll need to draw a bath. Now first you must give your stuffed animal a name. Let's say you have a teddy bear and you decide to call him Cuddles. Next you cut Cuddles open and remove all of his stuffing, replacing it with rice and a few of your fingernail clippings. After the stuffing rice transfusion, you need to sew him back up. Use the needle and red thread, making sure you've thread left over so you can wrap it tightly around Cuddles' body. You know, making him look even more sinister than he already looks. At 3 a.m., you take Cuddles into the bathroom and you draw a bath. You hold Cuddles in both hands and you say out loud, using your own name, whatever that may be, you say, for the first game, I'm... and we'll call this person Karen. For the first game, I'm Karen... I'm going to be it. Say this three times. For the first game, I'm Karen. I'm going to be it. For the first game, I'm Karen. I'm going to be it. Three times, and then drop cuddles into the water. Here, you'll want to run around the house, turning off all the lights. You're allowed to leave the television on, but only if it's on a static-filled station. Close your eyes and count to ten. When you're finished, Open your eyes and grab the knife or whatever instrument you've chosen and return to the bathroom and say, I found Cuddles, and proceed to stab him with the knife. Congratulations, you won that game. Note in Japanese, the word for it in hide and seek and tag is oni or devil. Knowing that fact makes the next part a little bit creepier. Now next, you say... Okay, now Cuddles is it, the devil. And leaving the impaled teddy bear in the bathroom, either in the water or on the floor, you quickly, yes, the instructions say quickly, hurry out of the room and hide quietly. Yes, the instructions also say to hide quietly. It's very important, whatever you do, make sure you have your glass of salt water or sake with you in your hiding place. Closets make excellent hiding places, so let's just say you're in the closet. You remain there waiting and listening. All sorts of strange things are said to happen. Apart from sounds, footsteps, and things being moved around, people have reported horrible smells, changes in temperature, and having the television suddenly switch off or the volume change dramatically. Some reported the sensation of being touched or pulled on. Others said their household pets freaked out. They cowered, barked, cried out. Whatever happens, stay hidden for as long as you can or until sunrise. The ending ritual is very important. You can't just hop out of the closet at sunrise and announce that you've won. Let's say it's still dark. Something has freaked you out and you want to end the game. Take as much salt water or sake in your mouth as you can Hold it there while you return to the bathroom. Don't assume Cuddles will be where you left him. There have been people who find either him or the knife moved or missing entirely. Keep searching. The whole house, keep searching until you find Cuddles. Once you find the bear, spit the salt water or sake all over him 
and tell him three times, I won, I won, I won. That almost ends the game. As a final precaution, it's imperative you burn the stuffed animal you used. Even though the game is over, people have posted that they've become ill, gotten into some kind of an accident, or continued to feel the presence of someone watching them. Oh, and another note of warning is not to play while someone else is in the house. There's always the possibility that they will be, quote, found instead of you, and something terrible will happen to them. To properly play Hitori Kakarinbo, you must be, and certainly must hope to remain, completely alone. Back in 1908, it was called Alabama Girls Industrial School, and Condi Cunningham was one of the students who lived on the fourth floor of the main residence hall. Late one night, Condi and her friends were using a burner, one of those little cooking burners, to make hot chocolate inside the dorm room. This was against the rules, but Condi and her friends were doing it anyway. They were all sitting on Condi's bed in their nightgowns, and then somebody accidentally knocked over the burner. The bed caught fire, and so did Condi Cunningham's nightgown. She began to panic. She ran down the hallway screaming for help. Now, as most people know, running is the worst thing you can do when you are on fire. You're supposed to drop on the ground and roll. But unfortunately, Condi did not know that. She ran up and down the hallway screaming for help, and this only fanned the flames. The flames grew larger and larger, completely consuming her body. Her friends could only watch in horror as Condi finally collapsed and was consumed by the flames, her dead body burned to a crisp. Ever since her death, Condi Cunningham's ghost has haunted the fourth floor of the old residence hall. Students living on that floor have reported hearing the horrifying screams of a girl echoing down the hallways at night. Others have heard footsteps running up and down the hall, although no one else is there. Some have even heard the voice of a female saying, Help me. Late one night, a girl who was staying in Condi's old room heard noises outside her door. When she opened the door, she was shocked to see a fiery apparition running down the hallway. Its body burned and blackened as flames blazed around it like a human torch. When the girl went back to her room, she saw her bed was on fire. The next morning, she left the university and never came back. Of all the paranormal events that surround this girl on fire, the strangest is what happened to the wooden door of Condi's old room. Right after Condi's death, her friends said that they saw the image of Condi's burning face appear right there in the pattern of the wood. The school administrator finally had the door replaced, but Condi's face began appearing in the new door. They replaced that door numerous times, but every time the image of the face came back to appear in the wood. The girls were so freaked out by all of this, eventually they just removed the door and they put it in a storage room. And even today, Condi's room has no door and none of the girls at Montevallo University will stay in the room 
and so it remains, empty and vacant. The students who live there still swear that their doors open and close of their own accord. Some say they've sensed the presence of Condi's ghost coming into their room. Her ghost has even been known to go into the shower and scream as the water flowed, but would not quench her flames. And some have reported that while they walked the halls of the dorm, going to class, coming from class, perhaps going for a meal, to spend time with friends, all of a sudden they'll hear a gut-wrenching scream and they'll turn to see the fiery body of a woman running from one end of the hall to the other, screaming a shrill scream of agony, an agony which began in 1908. And for all these decades since, every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, for decades upon decades, her body engulfed in flames, her fiery existence a literal and agonizing hell. With your permission, I would like to close tonight's Ghost Stories broadcast with a ghost story that I wrote myself here in the last week or so. I was talking to Natalie about my love for ghost stories, and she knows I have a love for writing and storytelling, and she said, you should do a ghost story yourself. And she works in the healthcare field, and we were talking about some of the things in hospitals that freak us out, give us goosebumps, give us the chills. There are some things in hospitals that really can get under your skin. And so using that as my inspiration, I wrote a short story. It actually runs about 10, 11 minutes or so. And I hope you find it entertaining, and I really hope you find it at least a little bit spooky. I call the story... Lydia, and it will be the final ghost story of tonight's show. Lydia wasn't exactly shy. She just preferred her own company over the company of most other people. The crowd, the hustle, the noise, the chaos, these things never suited her. Perhaps it's for that reason that she preferred the night shift at Winter Haven Hospital. Nursing had been a difficult career for her, but also a rewarding one. And while her counterparts during the day were fast pinballing from door to door, room to room, patient to patient, Lydia's world was much calmer, quieter, more peaceful. Most of the patients then sleeping quietly. The lights in the hallways dimmed, the halls reduced from high-traffic arteries of people to only a few occasional footsteps. A nurse, somebody from maintenance replacing a light bulb. This was Winterhaven from 11 p.m. to sunrise. And for Lydia and her quiet life, it was a place of respite. Some nights were so slowly paced, so quiet, that she even found time to read. The seventh floor after midnight often looked like a mall that had closed for the day. Lots of doors and windows, but dimly lit and pretty much vacant outside the patient rooms. Some might find this a bit disconcerting, but not Lydia. Twelve years a nurse, she'd seen everything, or most everything. But this quiet, slightly built woman with the vaguely alto voice, the deep brown eyes, the thin, straight hair, which barely crested her shoulders. The careful mannerisms and measured words, life had very few surprises. 
That's the sound of the patient call button at the nurse's station. People call for medicine, they call for food, they call for help walking to the bathroom, for assistance changing TV channels, for closing or opening the blinds, for the request of a fancy steak dinner, better pictures on the wall, different bed sheets, somebody to read to them at night, to yell, to cry, to simply lie there like a stone. They'd call the nurse for all manner of reasons, and sometimes for no reason at all. Room 706. Lydia pressed the button on the intercom. Yes, may I help you? And there was only silence. Yes, may I help you? Still nothing. Silence in an occupied hospital room can be a good thing, and it can also be a very bad thing. Somebody needed to check. Lydia was surrounded by papers and charts at the seventh floor nurse's station, but she saw Stacy, a fellow RN, out of the corner of her eye. Stacy, hey, can you go check on 706? He keeps hitting the call button. He doesn't say anything. I have no idea what he wants. Would you make sure he's all right? Stacy said, sure, okay. And she drifted down the dimly lit hospital hallway to the left and toward the closed door of 706. Lydia went back to work, still humming the earbug she'd caught from the radio station in her car on the way to work. Beyond that, the halls were silent. Ten minutes must have passed, and still nothing from Stacy. It was a long walk down to 706, so Lydia texted Stacy's cell phone. Everything okay? No response. Another minute passed. Lydia was about to get up when the intercom sounded again. Can I help you? Hello? Stacy, are you in the room? Stacy, are you in there? And there was a long silence. And then... she had to admit. Admit. Admitting. Say, when had 706 been admitted to the hospital? Who was in there? She walked around the corner of her desk to look at the whiteboard. Nothing. For 706, nothing at all. The space on the marker board totally blank. Where was the paperwork? Where's the chart? Who was in there? Where was Stacy? The lights began to flicker. And then in the flashes of light, she saw Stacy, not at 706, but at the end of the north hallway looking out the window. Lydia could only see her outline from the back from far away. Stacy? Stacy, are you okay? Stacy, what's going on? The entire wing thrust into black 
except for the narrow beams of the emergency lights which faintly lit the white walls and the white tile. It was like standing inside a tomb with only a flashlight. And then Lydia looked up to see that Stacy was gone. There was nobody at the window anymore. The open window. The open window? With blinds raised, the curtains flowing, and a key turned in the tiny lock that opened the window to the chilled October breeze, a key for which only the nurses and hospital staff had a copy. Stacy? Stacy? Anybody? place to put the madness behind her and just run. She ran from behind the station, eyes wild, arms flailing as she bounded down the long hallway toward the elevators and hopefully toward safety. She ran past the closed doors one by one, the room numbers whizzing by in a blur. 716, 715, 714. Gone was the peace, the calm, the sanctuary of the night shift at Winterhaven. 713, 7-12, 7-11. Her leg muscles burned as she thrust by the gurneys, the cafeteria carts, empty wheelchairs. Why were all these things just sitting abandoned in the halls? 7-10, 7-09. The air became thick like molasses. 7-08. She felt as if she was running on top of a landslide, every step costing so much, but gaining so little. 707. She pressed against the air as if it was made of heavy concrete, and then she looked to her left, and she saw the door. The open door of room 706. The room was cloaked in darkness, except for the faint moonlight spilling in through the window. The bed was empty and perfectly fitted with sheets and blankets. There were no IVs, no monitors, no equipment of any kind, no charts hanging from the bed, no flowers, no cards, no signs of life anywhere, no signs that this room had been occupied. And from what seemed like miles down the hallway, she heard the nurse's monitor again. For Lydia, it seemed inevitable that she discover the secret of 706. Her shoulders seemed locked toward that patient room door, unable to turn unable to redirect, unable to go anywhere but toward the moonlit mystery before her. And slowly she stepped, the air so cold that she shuddered and shook. Slowly she stepped into a doorway that framed her like a portrait, the picture of fear. Slowly she stepped 
inch by inch into the darkness of 706. The moonlight fading suddenly to black, the box around her absolutely dark except for the rectangle of light pouring in through the hallway door. She said, who are you? What are you? What do you want from me? What do you want? And then she saw, so faintly, in the dim light, right there at the edge of the bed, the red blanket folded so neatly and perfectly. The red blanket. Wait a minute. The hospital blankets aren't red, they're tan, blue, and white. And it was at that moment that she saw the tiny crimson drops spilling from the cloth, creating a tiny pool, spilling down from fabric that only moments ago was the color of a baby blue sky. Fear enveloped her. Lydia's legs collapsed from beneath her, her body reeling with shock, her lungs heaving yet finding no oxygen. The whole world seemed to be collapsing upon her. And then, half lying, half sitting, half stumbling on the floor of room 706, she turned her shoulders slightly to see the door to 706 slowly begin to close. She sat there, terrified, petrified, immobile, in the darkness and the silence, the darkness and the silence, the darkness and the silence. And then she heard a voice that said, I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. already had some friends ask me, what was lurking in the room, Seth? What was lurking behind the door of 706? Was it a vampire? Was it something else? And I just look right back at him and say, you tell me, you know, you tell me what was in that room. The best ghost stories sort of feed on the imagination and allow the imagination to feed it right back. So you tell me what was in room 706 and happy halloween i hope the holiday is wonderful for you and yours a special thanks to our show sponsor tonight evolvefish.com with wonderful products of all shapes and sizes say it with style and occasionally say it with sarcasm evolvefish.com and i'll see you next week follow the thinking atheist on facebook and twitter Watch dozens of original videos on the Thinking Atheist YouTube channel. And visit our website for resources, links, contact information, the editor's blog, and more. TheThinkingAtheist.com